This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? Brendan O'Brien and welcome to the Astrophys podcast. The title of today's podcast is Dust and Protoplanetary Discs with Professor Sarah Madison. Each session we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest from both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy, we'll have a news roundup, have a history and theory session from Nadezhda and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. So let's begin by crossing straight over to Tver in Russia and speaking with Professor Nadezhda Shcherbakov. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. Thank you. Спасибо. I am very good. Very good. Today we continue our series of talking about standing on the shoulders of giants. And today we're going to talk about Krot Riba, radio astronomy pioneer, atheist, and still a legend. He was born in 1911 and was a pioneer of radio astronomy and combined his interests in ham radio and amateur astronomy. He was instrumental in investigating and extending Karl Jansky's pioneering work and conducted the first sky survey in radio frequencies. His mother, Harriet, was a teacher who taught Edwin Hubble, and she got her son interested in astronomy with a book written by Hubble. Young Reba was also interested in ham radio, and by the time he was 15 years old, he had built a transmitter receiver and used it to speak with other ham radio amateurs around the world. In 1933, just as Jansky was discovering extraterrestrial radio waves, Rieber graduated from the Illinois Institute of Technology with a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering. Rieber had read Jansky's report and was inspired to detect these amazing signals himself. 
He designed a large parabolic dish to collect the radio waves and focus them onto his radio receiver. He got a quote for $7,000 to build the telescope. Since this price was way out of his reach, he decided to build the dish himself. And with the help of two friends, Reber built his own dish out of galvanized sheet metal and a wooden frame. It could tilt up and down, but relied on the movement of the earth to move in the horizontal plane. The dish was 9.4 meters in diameter with a focal length of 6 meters. It cost him $1,300, which in today's money is about $30,000, or 2 million rubli in my money. So, his radio antenna was the second ever to be used for astronomical purposes, and the first parabolic reflecting antenna to be used as a radio telescope. For nearly a decade, he was the world's only radio astronomer, as a result of the early and untimely death of Karl Jansky. Reber's first receiver operated at around 3,000 megahertz and failed to detect signals from outer space, as did his second receiver operating at 900 megahertz. Finally, his third attempt at 160 megahertz was successful in 1938, confirming Jansky's discovery. He powered his antenna, he powered his amplifiers and all his later receivers from batteries to avoid interference entering the equipment along power cables. Standing on Jansky's shoulders, he set out to make a radio map of the Milky Way. First, he confirmed Jansky's claim that the static was strongest at the constellation Sagittarius the center of the universe. He also detected strong signals from other constellations. Reba published his initial findings in the proceedings of the Institute of Radio Engineers and tried to get astronomers interested in radio waves. Reba submitted his paper to the Astrophysical Journal, but there was no one there qualified to review his paper. As Reba explained in January 1988 in an article for the Toronto Star, the astronomers couldn't understand the radio engineering and the radio engineers couldn't understand the astronomer. The editor of the journal decided to publish the paper without a review and it finally appeared in June in 1940. Reber continued to improve his telescope and map the universe. In 1943, he started to explore the sun and found strong radio signals. This discovery had already been made accidentally by the British a year earlier, but had been kept as a military secret until after the war. He discovered that radio waves could penetrate the interstellar dust that normally blocks the view of the Milky Way, and this was an important improvement over traditional optical astronomy. In 1954, Reba moved to Tasmania, off the coast of southern Australia, to be closer to the South Magnetic Pole, where the Earth's ionosphere was the weakest, and therefore radio waves were the strongest. He joined the CSIRO 
and constructed a new wire antenna instrument over 3,000 feet in diameter that measured wavelengths at 150 meters. It is still one of the world's largest radio telescopes. Rieber continued to work into the next decade when he was in his 80s. He was trying to find more ways to create holes in the atmosphere so that he could get more data from longer wavelengths. He died in Tasmania in 2002 at the age of 91. And you, Brendan, can confirm that there is a wonderful Groth Rieber Museum not far from Hobart in Tasmania. Next week, we look at another giant of radio astronomy, and this time it is a woman, and she is from Sydney in Australia. And her name is Ruby Payne Scott. See you next week, Brendan. Goodbye, Nadezhda. Talk soon. Hello. Hello, Dr. Madison. Sarah. Thank you very much for giving up your time to talk to us. No worries. Welcome, Sarah Madison. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, Sarah, and how you became involved in astrophysics? Yeah, sure. At uni, I did a Bachelor of Science degree, and at that stage, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. As a teenager, I was pretty interested, and, and as a kid, in all areas of science, and was just pretty fascinated by how the world works. And when I was at high school, there were a couple of aha moments that made me pretty fascinated by astronomy, and one of those was in Year 11 maths class, where we had some very simple equations which governed or described at least the way that planets orbit around the sun. And I thought that was pretty fantastic because they were really very simple equations. And I thought, this is pretty cool that maths can tell you what's going on up there. Or you could also flip it on its head and say maths was telling the planets what to do, which of course isn't true, but it kind of looked like that at the time. I thought that was an excellent application of, of mathematics. And in chemistry class, when we're learning about elements in the periodic table, you know, that's sort when you learn that all elements are made in stars and that was also you know it's a pretty fantastic thing to learn and to think about and when I went to uni I thought I would do chemistry and then when we signed up at orientation I was told that in first year chemistry there were three hour labs and in second year chemistry there were six hour labs and I have to admit that the lab component had not really been my most favorite part <laughs> of science um, even though I was, I was very interested I suppose in theoretically how things work I realized that the theory side was of much more interest to me and I thought well just do what you enjoy and what you're what you're good at so I kept doing mathematics so I, I was doing a little bit of geology as well and we played with dinosaurs which was fun um, and geophysics but really a focus on on maths and then moving more towards applied mathematics and when you get to your honours year you really need to choose a, a research project and I was tossing up between sort of atmospheric science and astrophysics. They were both areas that I thought were pretty interesting and had lots of fun applications and a friend told me that if I did meteorology I'd get blamed for the bad weather for the rest of my life. So I did a project in, in astrophysics and I kind of haven't looked back from there. So then I went on to do a PhD within the maths department but in computational astrophysics. Okay. What is your role at Swinburne University at the moment? What does your work entail? 
at the moment I'm the dean of the School of Science, so that's really a you know a sort of leadership administration management D type role. So I oversee our science degree, our Bachelor of Science, and sort of look after. Well, I don't really look after anyone. I suppose I help guide in our three departments. So that takes up a lot of my time. And when I can, I also still sneak in a bit of research so that I get to do astrophysics as well. I mean, I'm also a professor of astrophysics, so I always manage to sneak in some research. Actually, I think a great thing about being an astronomer is that you get telescope time and you have to go. So you just tell your boss, I've got to go. That's really nice. I think if you were doing only theoretical work, you'd never have that excuse to leave. Fantastic strategy. Tell us about your research. I believe you're working on planet formation. Yeah, that's right. In my PhD, I was doing computational astrophysics. So I was sort of doing theoretical modelling of protoplanetary disks, which are the disks of gas and dust that surround young, newly formed stars. And these are the disks inside of which planets form. And what I was doing for my PhD was to add dust into a gas hydrodynamics code because obviously planets like this one we're standing on now are made from dust, not just gas. And so we were doing quite a lot of fluid dynamics and having a look at the effect of gas on the dust phase. So what that basically led to is us having a look at the very early stages of planet formation. So when we look at disks around young stars, we're having a look at the gas and the dust phase. And what we wanted to know is how is it that the dust evolves? We know that the planet formation process is planets grow by small dust grains colliding and sticking, growing into pebbles, and then those pebbles collide with each other in low-speed collisions and grow into larger and larger objects, and then they become so large that they can sort of gravitationally attract other dust that's nearby. And obviously that's a simplification, but, you know, eventually these larger bodies will then attract all of the smaller bodies around them and then you'll form protoplanets and those protoplanets sort of collide and grow into fully-fledged planets. And the sort of things that we're trying to look at is what happens when you have a planet inside a disk? How does that affect the dust? Can that lead to second generations of planet formation by sort of compressing the dust in certain areas and producing over-densities within the disk that will then gravitationally collapse and form new planets? The other thing that happened is in 2003, the Australia Telescope Compact Array was upgraded to millimetre wavelengths and in the millimetre wavelengths we can have a look at the cold dust or the the emission from cold dust around these disks. So then we were able to use the telescope um, to try and test some of our theories or to try and see if what our simulations were showing is what also happens in real life. And if we sort of fast forward 10 years to now, um, then what we're seeing is that with telescopes like the Compact Array and certainly with the new telescope in Chile, ALMA, these large radio telescopes can map out the dust phase in these disks around young stars. And what we can see is that the gas and the dust are behaving um, in a different way. We can start to see gaps and rings in the dust phase in these disks. And we think that this is signatures that there are, you know, young planets that are gravitationally clearing out these gaps. Um, So that's the sort of things that I'm working on. Sounds fantastic. And so get your data, your grabbing data from radio telescopes all over the world. Then do you crunch all of that data in supercomputers? We use different tools. So with the 
from the radio telescopes, the data that we get, it's not a huge, huge amount of data. So we don't actually need a supercomputer to go through the observational data. We can just use normal computers to sort of analyze the data and make images and things like that. What we use supercomputers for is to run the numerical codes, run the gas and dust codes, to run the models, Ah, to see what we think, how these systems will evolve in time. When we have these numerical models and have a look at the evolution of gas and dust and planets in these disks, we then want to compare the results of those simulations to our observations. So we also have a sort of second phase where we take the results of the computer simulation and make mock images out of those. What would this type of telescope see? And then we can compare those two sets. We can compare what the computer gives us compared to what the telescope gives us. And by doing that, that allows us to determine ranges of certain parameters that in the observational data set that we don't know. So if I give you an example, one of my students is having a look at a later phase of planetary evolution called debris disks. So these are disks that have a very poor in gas. The gas phase has almost dissipated and it's mostly just dust in these disks. And you can see with telescopes like ALMA and the compact array, these dusty disks, but they're not symmetric. They're quite asymmetric. They might be eccentric disks, squash disks, or they might be sort of one-sided or they might be offset from the center of the star. And we've got models that say, well, a planet could be doing that. The gravitational perturbation of a planet could produce that signature in the observed disk. So we can't see the planet, but we believe that there's a planet there. So then we can use the supercomputer to run a whole series of simulations where each simulation we test a slightly different planet mass or a slightly different planet position. And then the results of those simulations we turn into these mock observations, compare that to what the telescope shows us, and then rule out a bunch of models and say, for example, oh, there's no way that a planet could produce this type of signature in the disk if its mass is less than half a Jupiter mass or it couldn't do it if its mass is greater than two Jupiter masses. So now we can say, okay, we've constrained the mass of a hidden planet that we don't know is yet there to between half a Jupiter mass and two Jupiter masses. And then we do that with a bunch of different parameters from the system. And so if we do that, then we can say, all right, great. So we now believe there's a hidden planet somewhere in this disk. Could we observe it? So could we go to planet hunters and say, go look for this planet? And so then we can run another series of models to say, okay, if this is the planet, these are the conditions of the planet, what type of telescope would I need to look at it? And how long would I need to point my telescope at this system in order to detect the planet? So that's the sorts of things that we're doing. That's wonderful. The idea of scientists sitting alone in a lab or peering up into a telescope or using some data and then coming up with these brilliant results, that idea seems to have gone a bit and everyone's collaborating and working in teams now. Tell us a bit about the sort of teams that you work with, Sarah. Yeah, sure. That's absolutely true. Most sciences these days, but certainly astronomy, it's it's very collaborative. And if we're using big telescopes, they're very expensive resources. And usually when you've got big expensive toys, it's best to share them. So <laughs> I think it's that same sort of approach. Also, when you're a researcher, you're usually an expert in really quite a narrow field. Yep. 
So I might be an expert at using radio telescopes in the millimetre, but I now need to have a look at what my, my discs would look like in the infrared, but I don't actually do infrared observations. So I need to go and find someone that is an expert at infrared observations and ask them to, do you know, have they got observations of the same disc? Yes, they have. Great. I've got these observations from my telescope. What have you got from your telescope? Oh, they look fantastic. Oh, hang on. Let's go and ask some theorists what they think this means. Here's a theorist who has got a fantastic theory that seems to match both of the data sets. Oh, great. They're really excited. So these are the sorts of things that that I think happen. So in the work that I do, I've got a group of collaborators in France who do the numerical simulations with me. We work with teams of observers from Australia, from France, from Chile, from the US. There's different projects, have different people moving in and out of these teams. Sometimes we have big observing projects that might go on for a couple of years. So then that team will be quite large people will kind of move in and out and when it comes time to analyzing the data or making models for that then we'll sort of tap different people on the shoulder and they'll come in and join the project at different times so it's certainly very collaborative personally I really really enjoy that it's fantastic at Swinburne I'm the only person that works on protoplanetary disks of the researchers I've got a team little team of PhD students so we all work together as a team which is great but when I go overseas or go and visit colleagues interstate that's always you know really exciting it's fantastic to bounce ideas off other people and kind of think of new projects to work on together fantastic it's all very creative work you also work with outreach educating the general public as well what outreach work do you do sarah We're really very focused on public outreach in astronomy at Swinburne. We have a big team of people that are doing all sorts of different things with the public. For 15 years, we've had a 3D virtual reality theatre and we run a program called Astro Tour. So students, primary school, high school kids, as well as general public come into the 3D theatre and we have an astronomer there. So if I'm a tour guide, for example, kids will come in and we'll take them through a 3D flight through the universe, basically. But it's quite tailored so if they're year five students then they'll see some astronomy that fits their curriculum and if they're year VCE students then we'll teach them about you know cosmology and stellar astrophysics or something that's particular to their area of the curriculum so I've been working with AstroTour for a long time and many other people at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing do that as well. Over the years the Victorian government changes its various science in schools type programs and I'm always very keen to be involved with those. Uh, Scientists in Schools is a program run by CSIRO. I think that's been going for about seven years or so now, and I've been a partner in that program. So what happens in Scientists in Schools is they match scientists up with different schools, and they basically just let you do whatever you want to do. And over the years, I've had all sorts of different relationships with different schools. I've had a program called The Moon Project, where I sort of teach kids about phases of the moon over the course of at least one month so that they can see all the lunar phases. I go and visit the schools once a week and we do a lunar activity and also talk about them collecting their data. They're learning about astronomy, but they're also learning about the scientific process. So they need to go out every day and or night 
and look up in the sky and try and find the moon. They then get to argue with each other. Was the moon up at night? Was the moon up at day? Some of them are like, what do you mean the moon's not up at day? And the others are like, yes, it is. I saw it in the day. So that's kind of fun. Um, they have to draw pictures of the moon so we can sort of see the phases changing. And then each week we get together like scientists would and share the data and yep. argue with each other and say, oh, it didn't look like that. Yes, it did. And, you know, then say, well, okay, prove it. Okay, well, everyone's got to go out tonight or today uh, and see what the moon looks like. And during the course of that month, we're also learning about making craters and using some online tools to map out craters on the moon. Might go and talk to them about radio astronomy. And I also do some mentoring work with school kids all around the world, actually. Sometimes I get contacted from schools in the UK and Canada and the US to mentor their kids. And that might just be something really simple. It might be like one Skype meeting with the kids to talk about whatever it is they want. Usually they'll send me a bunch of questions. And it could be very astronomy related, but more often than not, it's a little bit of astronomy and a lot about, you know, your job and what it's like to be a scientist and how did you become a scientist and those sorts of things. I can tell just by the way you're speaking that you get an enormous amount of enjoyment out of that as well as your research, Sarah. I absolutely love research and, you know, that's really sort of keeps me going. But research is a long-term project and you can struggle and go down dead ends and things can take a long time and not work. And, and because you work in teams, which is fantastic, it also means you're relying on others. So you can't necessarily get things done when you want to. So there can be frustrations as well in scientific research, which also makes achievements so much more rewarding. Public outreach and also teaching at uni, for me anyway, is a real instant gain. It's great because public outreach in particular, it's stuff that I know, stuff you just know. Yep. And all you have to do is tell people this stuff that you know, and they're absolutely fascinated and really appreciative. And Now, you did mention the frustrations, and there's <laughs> certainly frustrations. At the moment, we're very much in a golden age for astrophysics. There's so many amazing things happening. There's some amazing technologies. There's some brilliant minds working. But it seems that sometimes that our political leaders don't put the funding where it needs to go. How are you feeling about the funding environment that we work in as scientists? Yeah, I think the funding for science in Australia has either been pretty constant for the last few decades or declining. So, you know, to me, that's really problematic. Different political parties come and go and say great things about how important it is to have a scientifically literate population as well as having a technological society to move forward in the 21st century. But I am concerned about the lack of consistent funding. I mean, when funding's tied to political cycles, they're short. And if we're talking about the future of our nation, that needs to be consistent long-term funding for scientific infrastructure, for education at all levels. I think there needs to be a lot more invested in scientific teaching at the high school level, absolutely, but also the primary school level in order to keep kids interested in the STEM areas, to get them into uni to do STEM and get them out into the workforce doing STEM. The funding for universities also 
changes all the time, which puts a lot of pressure and changes the way that we do business at universities, puts a lot of pressure on researchers as well to go and find their own money, which if you work with industry might not be so difficult. But I am pretty concerned about blue sky research at universities. If you don't have obvious industry connections, then how will you be funded? Funding through the Australian Research Council plateaus or declines. The dollar value might increase, but if we consider CPI as well, it's, you know, it's not great. Yeah. So, you know, there's concerns there for sure. <laughs> we definitely need that pure research. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks. See ya. Bye now. Bye. This week we're talking with Dr Ian Musgrave again about what's up in the night sky this week. Welcome, Ian. How are you? I'm very good. Our listeners are often interested in finding out the background of some of our presenters. Can you tell me what you were doing this week at work? You work at Adelaide University, do you? Yes, I work at Adelaide University. This week at work was, from your listeners point of view, fairly boring. I've been getting ready to start the new teaching semester, so we've been uploading lecture notes. This week, we've had downtime. We're just cleaning up the lab, getting ready for start. One PhD student who's been trying to grow the spinal cord neuron, how to fix spinal cord injuries. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. I've had a look at your website at Astro Blogger, and I was very interested to see some of the blogs you recommend there. I already go to a few of those, but there's some good ones there for me to have a look at, so I'll do that. Check out Comet Owl. You might want to check out his blog. Okay. I also got the information from your website last week about the International Space Station, and I looked up heavensabove.com, but we had some cloud during the time that was recommended, but I also found out that the International Space Station will be passing over my house tonight at 20 past six, which it'll be just after dark. Looking forward to going out and having a look at that. Another good thing about the International Space Station passes is when they're that high, quite often, not only are they going to be a bright and spectacular, but they'll pass close to things. The passes for the ISS and the locations of the flares are very, very dependent on where you are. So even moving a few tens of kilometres away from, say, Adelaide is high site, you can see something completely different. So you really need to set this up directly for your site. Very good, Ian. And we'll just remind our listeners that heavens-above.com is a great place to go to find out what satellites and iridium flares and what's happening above your sky at night. Now, can you do one more thing for us, Ian, just before we head over and talk about what's up in the night sky this week. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about magnitudes and positives and negative magnitudes? That's often a bit confusing to people who go and look at a site like Heavens Above. Yeah, magnitudes are one of those things where it started out with a a reasonably logical progression and then the universe caught up with it. And so some of the things don't quite make sense anymore. To start off with the simplest thing, for most people, if you go out into the bush, for most people, the stars which are just visible to the unaided eye are magnitude six. So if you see something, say, magnitude six, that's just visible to the unaided eye. Um, smaller numbers are, are brighter. 
larger numbers are dimmer. So something magnitude 7 uh, is not visible to the unaided eye. Most reasonable binoculars you can get down to magnitude 8 fairly easily. And telescopes you can get down to magnitude 12. Going on the other side, again as the numbers get smaller, the stars get brighter. A, a good example is Sirius is a, a, is a negative magnitude star. It's, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky and it's uh, and it has a negative magnitude. I'll just give you an idea. Um, Sirius, uh, the brightest star in the sky, is magnitude minus one. Planets obviously get very much brighter. Uh, Jupiter at the moment is around about magnitude minus two. Venus gets, uh, which I'm going to talk about shortly, gets as bright as magnitude minus four. Venus can be sometimes seen in the daylight. Okay, so magnitudes are expressed as the opposite of what we would logically expect. Yeah, a magnitude one star is roughly about two and a half times brighter than a magnitude two star and, and so on and so forth. That's logarithmic, is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So thank you very much, Ian, for that information on how magnitudes work. We'll now pass over to your section. We'll hand the microphone over to you. And could you tell our listeners what's up in the sky this week? For visual observers, the most exciting thing is, again, Venus and Mercury. If you go out into the sky just around about dusk, half an hour after the sun sets, you'll be able to see all five bright planets. You'll be able to see Venus twinkling brightly just above the horizon. Above that, you will see Mercury. Then above that, Jupiter. And then if you trace that along in the southern hemisphere, if you trace that along to the north, you'll see the bright Mars. As the week goes on, you'll be able to see Mercury rising into the sky. Both Venus and Mercury are rising higher in the sky. But Mercury, of course, is named after the swift messenger of the gods. And Mercury moves quite rapidly in the sky. So you'll be able to see it moving closer and closer. Also, you can watch later in the evening and you'll be able to see Mercury a lot brighter as the sky is darker. Now, between the 30th and the 31st, Mercury and Regulus can be very, very close together. So that'll be very interesting to see. And by next Thursday, you'll be able to see something really beautiful, which is the thin crescent moon right next to Regulus and Venus in the, in the, in the dusk sky. You'll be able to see this beautiful little triumphate of the thin crescent moon, Regulus and Venus together uh, in the dusk sky. The other thing that's coming up is the Perseid meteor shower. Now, for your northern hemisphere visitors, the Perseids are one of the most reliable, uh, intense of the meteor showers. And it's a bit, again, this is very uh, good for visual observing for Australian observers. Now, for the radio amateurs amongst your listeners, they may be interested in the fact that you can pick up meteors with your radio telescopes or a simple FM radio. Watching meteors burn across the sky in the dark is absolutely beautiful, and especially if you're out somewhere very, very dark. But even if even in the suburbs, a good meteor shower can produce some really nice, fantastic meteor burns. However, if you have a radio telescope or an FM radio, 
you're able to listen to the meteors. And this is really good because it doesn't matter if it's raining or cloudy. It doesn't matter if the sun's just come up. You're able to listen to the meteors. Meteors uh, scream through the sky. They create a trail of ionized gases which act as reflectors. And so uh, what you uh, do with either a, a radio telescope or an FM radio is you tune your, your scope to a frequency, say, uh, like a guide beacon that is just over the horizon and, and may either just not uh, uh, listable or just or just listable. And as the meteors come across, the uh, trails, the ionised trails will cause a reflection and you'll be able to pick up the meteors as, as definite pings in either your FM radio or your radio telescope. The peak of the Perseids is, is relatively narrow. The peak is expected to turn up between 8 and 22 hours universal time, August the 12th. Uh, there may be a peak coming through a bit earlier. Now, the southern Delta Aquarians are coming up on peaking on July 30th. So if you want to have a bit, little bit of a play, if you have a dish uh, set up, then you can point the dish towards Aquarius and when Aquarius rises. Uh, sadly, tragically, for both the Aquarians and the uh, Perseids, the best time to look or listen is after midnight. Uh, and best time is around about uh, four o'clock in the morning, which is uh, very inconvenient for those of you who like our sleep. But for those of you who are able to get up early, um, that's a very good time. So in uh, preparing early, have a bit of a play with the Southern Delta Aquarians and then get ready for the Perseids. Now, in terms of how many meteors you'll see, meteor rates are talked about in terms of ZHRs, which stands for Zenithal Hourly Rates. This is the number of meteors you'd expect to see if the meteor radiant was directly above your head at the zenith, you're in a completely dark sky and there's nothing in the way. Uh, so the predicted ZHR for the Perseids is 150. However, in practice, you'll never see or hear this number because for most people, the, the radiant doesn't get to the zenith. Uh, there'll be things in the way like trees. Um, but for the Northern Hemisphere, you can expect to see something like one to two meteors every minute. Thank you very much, Dr. Ian Musgrave, once again for speaking with us. We'll look forward to speaking to you again next week. No worries. Okay, catch you then. Here is the news. Magdalena Ridge Optical Interferometer, the first of 10 large optical telescopes designed to radically advance astronomy, has arrived at a remote mountaintop in New Mexico. The technical and scientific goals are to produce images of faint and complex astronomical targets at resolutions over 100 times that of the Hubble Space Telescope. The MRO 2.4 metre telescope can observe artificial objects in low Earth orbit. The telescope is also used for asteroid studies, an observation of other solar system objects. It has 10 1.4 metre telescopes located on three arms, each about 300 metres long. Each arm will have nine stations where the telescopes can be positioned and repositioned, and one telescope can be positioned at the centre. The telescopes and their enclosures will be moved with a customised crane. The light will strike a total of 11 mirrors before entering a sensor. The light from all 10 optical telescopes will ultimately 
ultimately be combined to create a single view, equal in resolution to that of a much larger telescope. This is the most ambitious interferometer at optical and infrared wavelengths being built in the world today, said MROI project scientist Michelle Creech Ekman. Optical interferometry is a similar strategy to that used at a nearby multi-dish radio telescope, the Very Large Array, operated by NRAO. The new MROI will have many tasks in the world of optical astronomy. It will be able to look at stars, external galaxies, black holes in the centre of them in particular, said Creech Ekman. The facility will also be watching for rogue asteroids and zooming in on low orbit and geosynchronous satellites to give them a health check. Kepler's new exoplanets Kepler Space Telescope, responsible for about half of the 2,000 exoplanets discovered so far, suffered a crippling equipment failure in 2013, but was resuscitated by a very clever fix by NASA and is back in the news again. Kepler was launched in 2009 and operated successfully for four years. An issue with the spacecraft reaction wheels, though, which keep it pointing steady at potential planet-hosting stars, brought its main mission to an end in 2013, but a clever fix using radiation pressure from the Sun to make it move in a predictable way saw it reborn as K2 or Kepler-2 in 2014, allowing the spacecraft to continue its mission to find planets elsewhere in our galaxy. Now mission scientists have confirmed 104 new planets. These are called exoplanets because they are outside our solar system and they were discovered by the revitalized Kepler telescope. The new discoveries include a group of four planets larger than Earth and which orbit a dwarf star 181 light years away. While all the planets are in very tight orbits between five and a half and 24 Earth days, their home sun is both smaller and dimmer than our sun. So two of these newly discovered planets might be in the Goldilocks zone. Kepler identifies exoplanets by measuring the dip in a star's brightness when a planet passes in front of it. All Kepler's discoveries are followed up with observations by Earth-based telescopes before being confirmed. Lux, dark matter and WIMPs. One of the world's leading dark matter detectors, the large underground xenon detector, LUX, has wrapped up a 20-month search for these elusive particles. Sometimes science runs into a brick wall, but we can be confident that creative minds will find a way under, over, around, or straight through this new brick wall. We've known for 80 years that without dark matter's gravitational pull, galaxies would spin themselves apart. This mysterious substance, which does not emit light or interact with normal matter except through gravity, makes up about 84% of the universe's mass. After ruling out ordinary matter that just doesn't emit much light, theoretical astrophysicists listed the basic characteristics for dark matter. The particles must have some mass and interact weakly with other matter. They call them weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs, and set about building detectors to find them. What's unknown is how often these particles bounce off each other, their scattering cross-section, and their mass. They should also occasionally bump into normal matter. These rare collisions are what experiments like LUX are designed to pick up in order to determine WIMP's properties. But today, at the Identification of Dark Matter conference in Sheffield, UK, the LUX team announced their final 20-month run ended without a single dark matter detection.
That means Lux has ruled out a large number of possible cross-sections and masses for WIMPs, to the point where some physicists argue it might be time to abandon the idea altogether. Meanwhile, as we reported last week, a new dark matter detector is being built in a lab a kilometre underground in a gold mine here in Victoria at Stall. We'll see if we can find one of the Stall dark matter team to interview. Today's news has been compiled from a number of resources. Magdalena Ridge Optical Interferometer has been compiled from mro.nmt.edu and krqe.com. The news on Kepler's new exoplanets is from nasa.gov and Cosmos magazine. Also from rxiv.org. The story on Lux, Dark Matter and Wimps has come from newscientist.com and Cosmos magazine. That was the news. That was this episode. Good night. Radio Wave!